Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Drunk. Oh, Papa. What do you think, Boss? You'd like to go down to Nashville with your old Uncle Red? Oh, Papa, please let me go with him. I just want a chance to be somebody. A real whorehouse? Dear Mom, I've been meaning to write, but Uncle Red and I have been real busy. Don't worry, we've been staying out of trouble. I'm keeping Uncle Red from drinking, and we've been staying out of honky-tonks. Working real hard. Uncle Red sure does crazy things sometimes. Keep him busy, boy. We're making a lot of new friends. I have conceived. Thanks, Ma, for letting me go with Uncle Red. Ah! We're learning a lot about each other. Uncle Red's teaching me to be somebody. Do, 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 do. Throw your arms around this honky tonk man. Throw your arms around this honky-tonk man. What the hell did I have to offer a kid? Just honky-tonks and flop houses. That's the life of a country singer. Boss, sound good to you? Don't sound too hot when you put it like that, but it sure beats picking cotton and living in a sharecropper shack. <laughs> Maybe you're right, boy. Maybe you're right. Throw your arms around this honky-tonk man. The boy on his way to becoming a man. The man on his way to becoming a legend. Clint Eastwood in Honky Tonk Man. And introducing Kyle Eastwood as Whit. And now... Hey, Rocky! Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat! Again? Nothing up my sleeve! Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hey, everybody, this is Mark Farner, the founding member of Grand Funk Railroad, and I'm listening to Nostalgic Radio in Cars, where they'll knock you alive.
Yes, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see me, moi, live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, 555, 556, somewhere in there, don't forget to check out com. Good evening, Tommy. Good evening, Robert. Behind the COVID 2021... Safe and sound. Glass, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, well... Got you in the box. I'm in the box. I'm in the box. Is my speaker thingy... I mean, does it sound kind of okay to you over there? Am I sounding okay? Everything sounds honky-dory over so we, here. So we got a radio check? Okay, so a big thumbs up to head. everybody. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so anyway, all right, so... Uh, we got an exciting show for you tonight. We actually have uh, our friend George Groon coming on for part two. It was such a fascinating story um, yesterday, and I know we have a lot of guys that are car guys, but we have a lot of car guys, cars, guys that are guitar guys, myself included. And uh, so I just thought George Groon would be kind of an interesting guy because he's one of the foremost uh, vintage car, uh, vintage collector, vintage guitar guys. And stores, shops in the country. Um, he's based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and uh, a couple of years ago, I went to NAM, which is the. Gosh, my man. You know what, Tommy? I don't even have to take stupid pills. I don't have to take memory loss pills because it just comes natural. I can't even remember what NAM stands for. I think it's National Music. Something or other. Can you Google it for me real quick? Because you're faster on the computer. Tell me what NAM stands for. I should know better. But anyway, there's a NAM in Nashville, Tennessee. And basically, it's a it's kind of like SEMA for cars. Or SEMA for guitars. Okay? So, it's the National Music Something Something Association. But Tommy's going to look it up for me real quick. I'm just not fast enough on a computer. My fingers just... You know, that's why I don't play that fast on a guitar either. I just kind of play some rhythm, you know? It's the thing about the musical instrument. It's a six-string instrument. And I was joking with a friend of mine. And, and when I first started playing, I was 10 years old. But the guitar that I bought had such a fat neck on it. It had an inch and seven-eighths nut, you know, which is the bottom part of the neck, you know, where the first fret is and i couldn't get my itty bitty little fingers around it much less the fingers i have today the ones that are still with me and uh so whereas let's say for example you get a student guitar which would be like the fender mustang or fender music master or um uh, i can't even think of the gibson one gibson had one called uh something like that too uh melody maker that's what it was and uh, get music maker, melody maker, whatever. Um, anyway, and the necks were like just about an inch and a half. You can get your you be little fingers right. So what does NAM stand for? I, I'm seeing multiple NAMs. I'm sorry, Robert. It's but not it's the National Na- Academy of Medicine. No, no, no. It's not that one. It's National something music. It's got something to do with music. So something about Na- Navy and Marine Corps. No, no, no. That's not it either. But just Google NAM Las Vegas, NAM Nash- Nashville. God. Um, anyway. Best Manufacturing Association, the NAM? What? National what? No, it's music. It's going to have national music, something other. I can't believe I can't remember this. But it's You know how you're committed to something? Okay, we know what it is. We've got to figure it out. We're going to get it done here. 
All right, because we are, that's the way we are. NAM is it's in uh, Nashville and it's in LA. The big one's in LA, the smaller one's in Nashville. National Association of Music Merchants. That's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. Okay, so basically anybody involved in the music industry, anybody that makes musical instruments, anybody that makes pedals, anybody that makes accessories, uh, that's what NAM is all about. So while my son and I were in Nashville a few years back, we went to NAM and we decided to kind of sightsee around Nashville. And obviously, two places you want to go is Gruen's Guitars and the uh, and Carter's. And they used to be um, they used to work together. Then Carter went out and opened. They actually co-authored a book together on on vintage guitars. And then Carter went out and opened up his own store with his wife. And then there's also the National. Gosh, I can't believe I can't even remember the name of the museum that's in. The National Museum of Musical Instruments, I believe, is in Nashville. And uh, unfortunately, which I, I couldn't get that because the, the, the event was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And you would think that the, it's kind of like in Las Vegas. If you go to SEMA, everything is open. Of course, Vegas is Vegas. Everything's open 24-7. And, um, but... Nashville, oddly enough, uh, Grand Ole Opry and a few places like that were not open to the public. Um, certain bits and pieces of some of the historical stuff was available, was open, but that was it And, that, and on a Sunday. And, of course, when you're generally when you're at these events, and I'll give you a good example, like when we go to SEMA and stuff like that, you're at, the, you're at the trade show all day long. Okay, so NAM is a trade show for musical instruments and people in the music industry, and um, just like SEMA is for cars, and the uh, consumer electronics show would be for people in the consumer electronics industry. And um, but you would think that they would be, you know, with if there's a trade show coming in town, the place is going to be inundated, it's going to be slammed with people, and you want everything open and everything available. The other thing we did do is we went to visit the because uh, the guys from. Uh, Pickers, American Pickers, Frank and uh, and Mike, they have a facility over there. So we did go check that out, and a couple of classic car places and things like that. So Nashville, Nashville is a pretty cool town. I really, I'm pretty impressed with it. That and the convention hall that they have downtown is amazing. I mean, they've done a lot of remodeling there, and I hadn't been in Nashville in 30 years, and uh, so going back there was kind of cool. At any rate, uh, what did we do this past weekend? Well, okay, what's going to happen this weekend? Obviously, if you want to find out about all the car shows, don't forget to check out flacarshows.com. Uh, Leadfoot Cities was this weekend, but I had other things going on. I went to the Villages Car Show. Now, the Villages Car Show was pretty cool. I don't normally go there uh, on a regular basis, but I do go there probably three, four times a year, sometimes more, and I might be going there more often because it's a lot of fun. Um, it's every third Saturday of the month. And it starts around 3.30, 4 o'clock, goes till about 8 or 9. The beauty of it is it's a big open town square. It's very nostalgic looking. Uh, lots of cars, good variety of cars, a lot of people there. Just And then the thing is they have like a town square there and kind of like a little courtyard type deal. And they have a band shell in there, um, if you will, a pagoda. Um and live music, people are dancing, people are having a great time. The place is loaded with restaurants, gift shops, all you know, just all kinds of neat stuff. I mean, it really, really was a fun event there. And a couple of cars that I saw that were really, really neat. One guy was the original owner, one owner on an 87 Mustang 50LX, kind of a pretty car, too. It was kind of an anthracite color, which is kind of dark gray metallic, real pretty. And um, I think they call it meteor gray today or something like that. But magnetic gray, that's what they call it on the new cars. But that was a pretty car. One owner car, uh, 
Turns out him and the guy and I and the guy were talking for a while. So if Craig's listening, big shout out to Craig. That's his name. Turns out he's a uh, musician as well. Plays guitar and plays uh, plays bass. And um, so that was kind of cool. He's from Chicago area, as our friend uh, George Groon coming on this evening. And uh, he used to play on uh, you know a little like local circuit there, you know, a local band. So that was kind of cool. That's nostalgic. Um, obviously, Amelia Island's coming up, twenty third of next month. Uh, the Walter Mitty's coming up, I think, next month, which is HSR in Atlanta. And this weekend, this on the 23rd, is uh, the Marshall Tucker Band with Doug Gray, still the founding member and lead singer for Marshall Tucker's. They will be in concert here in Clearwater at uh, Ruth Eckert Hall. So definitely check out Marshall Tucker this weekend. So big shout out to those guys. Any rate, but uh, so that car show was pretty cool. I enjoyed the villages, even though it was worth the drive. It's two and a half hours from Clearwater. But, you know, sometimes you just take these country little roads. And let me tell you guys, there's a lot of stuff still out there. Um, generally, you know, trade secret, you know, you go around on weekends and um, stuff's out there. I, myself, picked up a 65 Mustang project car over the weekend. Couldn't pass it up. You know, I was sitting there, and it just came screaming at me and said, Hey, 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 come get me. So it's a 64-and-a-half Mustang coupe. Pretty rough, but it'll make a good project for somebody. So if you're looking for a Mustang, I'll have it on my website here shortly. Or I'll probably put it on Facebook. Or I'll put it on Craigslist. Or I'll put it someplace. But I'm not keeping it. I'm selling it. So <laughs> I got loads and loads of Mustang parts, and that's kind of what I specialize in. And, you know, it's just one of those cars. A Mustang is just, and there was another one I checked out on the way down here. It was sitting in the car lot, another V8 car. Got to get a V8 car. I mean, if you got the, the time and you want to build a kind of a resto mod, go grab any six-cylinder. You can steal a six-cylinder for next to nothing right now. Jerk the motor up, put the height suspension underneath it, put all the big heavy-duty, put yourself a crate motor in it, and build yourself kind of a pro-touring car. That's the hot setup, okay? If you got the money and the time. If you don't, just find yourself an older Mustang, tweak on it a little bit, drive it as you go. Um, one of these days, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about cars with sitting in a car behind the steering wheel, looking out over the hood. I was thinking about that today when I was beating around in, in, a, in an old Jaguar XKE, and it's got a big hump on the hood. Did you see that car, the green one? Okay. Um, and uh, so it's been lying around for a while, and it's just... Uh, Belongs to a friend of mine. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's like sitting behind a Boss 429. You got that big giant hood scoop. You sit behind a Shaker, sit behind a Trans Am, sit behind a, a cow hood on a Camaro. You know, we'll go into that one day. We'll talk about some of all the cool hoods on cars. And when I look back and I think back on the day, you know, even Mopars, and the only thing that was irritating about a Mopar, particularly an E-Body, if you're sitting behind a Shaker on a, on a Challenger or a, or a Cuda or a, a Rally Hood or something like that, you sat low on a Mopar. The seats just didn't go up high. It was like you could barely see over the top of the steering wheel and the dash, and you got this really cool hood there, you know. And then it came up a little bit, you know, kind of like a power bulge. Like on, and that's what Mopar calls theirs on their, on their B-Body chargers and stuff. You could just barely see over them. You know, that was one thing I complained I had about Mopars is you sat low in the cars. Wasn't comfortable. Anyway, I think we're going to go to a commercial break here real quick. Here's a quick tune by uh, Marshall Tucker. Hey, don't touch that dollar. We'll be right back. You tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
my family away from my Carolina home Had dreams about the list and started to roam Six long months on a dust-covered trail They say heaven's at the end, but so far it's been hell And there's fire on the mountain, lightning in the air Rolling them hills and it's waiting for me From five to five Selling everything we found Just to stay alive Gold flowed free Like the whiskey in the bar Said he was the big thing Lord and said he was star And there's fire on the mountain Lightning in the air Golden in hills And it's waiting for me Enjoy the best brews in Tampa Bay at Dunedin Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunedin Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunedin Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunedin. Visit them online at dunedinbrewery.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Okay, we're back in the tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Yeah, Marshall Tucker Band originated in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you were listening to the lyrics of that song from my Carolina home. Uh, Bud Morris from Spartanburg, South Carolina. The Gray Fox, David Pearson, one of my all-time favorite NASCAR drivers, is from Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is just north east of Anderson, South Carolina, and I've been up to Anderson a few times, and there were some pretty cool cars laying around out there in them there woods. So one of these days, I'm going to have to hike it back up there and check it out. I think the BMW factory is in Spartanburg, South Carolina. But anyway, on that note, I think what we're going to do is we're going to fire up the old Appalachian turntable and play some old bluegrass here, and then we're going to get our guests on the line. What do you think of that? Does that sound like a winner there, uh, Tommy? Two thumbs up. All right. Hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Here's a little uh, Norman Blake, right? That is correct. That is correct. Okay. You're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and uh, enjoy a little bluegrass. We'll be right back. Shouldn't let her move me on Come sunshine, rain or drought 
Just like the circle says Southern serves the sound Hardships and trouble Lord, you know I've had some Getting older every day I'm a fair weather bum Let me tell you good people here It's just about time Catch a slow train through Georgia And ease my worried mind This is Billy F. Gibbons from ZZ Top, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. We are going to continue uh, with part two, and our special guest is uh, the founder and CEO of Gruen Guitars, George Gruen himself. George, how are you doing this evening? Doing good. Pleased to be able to talk to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Hey, listen, um, 
I just had uh, I, I met Billy Gibbons a couple times, been trying to get him on my show. But I know you sold him some guitars over the years. What kind of guitars did he like to buy and play with? Billy, over the years, bought, has bought over a hundred guitars from me. But he's bought all sorts of things, mostly electric. But he's bought some acoustics too. So it's everything from Les Pauls to uh, you name it, Fender Stratocasters. Uh, the weirdest thing he may have bought was a Larson Brothers acoustic cutaway F-hole guitar made in Chicago about 1940 that measured 22 inches wide. Gigantic. Uh, in fact, it was big enough that my ex-wife, <laughs> who was about five foot three, was able to curl up completely inside the case. I could shut the lid and she'd fit in the case. Wow. By the way, uh, I went online and I listened to that one video where you were talking about, you know, the basics, you know, like you when you first started the little story that you told us about the guitar lesson you did uh, when you were sitting for the other guitar teacher. And uh, you make guitar playing sound pretty easy. So if you had to go out there and get, and I keep in mind, I started when I was 10 years old, played it for a while, struggled with it, because the guitar I was telling you about that I got, that 335 knockoff, that Lyle, had an inch and seven-eighths nut. It was extremely thick for a kid, you know, I did, and I went in, like I said, to buy a Fender Mustang or a student guitar of some kind, something like that, and, you know, with an inch and a you know, five-eighths nut, inch-and-a-half nut, something like that, and that was just really too big. And then I got discouraged, and I quit playing, then I picked up the bass years later and played that for a little bit, then I got into cars, boats, motorcycles, and that stuff, and now here I am in my early 60s, and I decided to pick up the guitar again, and I've been totally passionate about it, but I'm still not practicing enough. So what's the best advice you want to give people to, with their, if they want to pick up the guitar and they want to learn, what's the most important thing? Practice, right? Well, practice, but you also have to start on something that is simple enough that within a week or two, you can play something that's fun and not just do nothing but exercises. I mean, you have to get a certain amount of ability to just simply play two or three chords and something simple and be comfortable holding the pick, holding the guitar, uh, having enough calluses on your fingers built up that you can play it comfortably because it does take a little while. If you start out, you know, playing till your fingers bleed, that's not going to be too comfortable. It takes a little while to build up calluses on your fingertips so that you're comfortable, but um, don't play any longer than until they start feeling a little bit sore, and then don't do that anymore, and wait. And uh, you find that you can uh, build up calluses very quickly on the fingertips, but until they're there, it's not real comfortable to play on a steel string guitar. Well, now, you mentioned calluses, and I've heard everybody say that. So just so we can set the record straight, it's not like you got to, when you're playing the frets, you're, it's not like you got to put a lot of pressure on it. It's just that because you're moving around a little bit, there's that friction on your fingertips, and that's basically where the calluses come from, correct? Am I? Well, it's not simply that. It's just even holding the strings down, there is some pressure, but it's on your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have to at least have somebody show you the proper way to hold it. If you try playing it on the, the flat surface of your, the bottom of your finger, that doesn't work. It has to be on the tip. Okay. And, uh, but 
yeah, if you, once you're shown the right hand position, uh, it comes pretty quickly. And most tunes, you don't need to start on something really elaborate. You start on learning that there can be, for almost any tune you can hum along with, there's going to be generally no more than three or four chords. A lot of them have only two chords. And you can learn, if, at least if it's country music, you can do alternating basses and hammer-ons and learn a scale. And once you get that, you're ready to go. You can play recognizable tunes quickly. And if you aren't able to do something that's fun to do pretty quickly, most people are going to lose interest real soon. Mm -hmm. But I can show somebody literally the basics of how to play country tunes in about a minute and a half. Then you have to practice it a little, but uh, it's not going to be... It may take three or four weeks before it feels completely comfortable and natural, but you can be playing recognizable tunes quickly. Once you get that, then you can learn a lot of the more intricate stuff, but you don't need to start that way. If you listen to a lot of performers, they were doing some, many of them were doing remarkably simple stuff. It does not require a whole lot of music theory. I think I was listening to an interview one time. I had Buck Rogers and, uh, no, not Buck Rogers, Buck Owens and Roy Clark. And Roy Clark always amazed me. I thought he was an amazing guitarist. Buck Owens says, the money's down here in the first five threats. You know, so that's kind of where he was. Harlan Howard said it was all in the first three. <laughs> first three, okay. Uh, he made millions composing country tunes. He was one of the most prolific songwriters in Nashville history. And he played everything in the first three frets. Uh, the Carter family, which is one of the biggest country music groups of the 1930s, actually they started in uh, 27 and were recording right through World War II, uh, did almost everything in the first three frets. And they played some pretty good melody lines. Uh, it was playing enjoyable music. You don't have to always be fancy to be good. Um, now, that's not to say there's no music past the first three or five frets, but uh, the fact is there's a whole lot of music that you can do in those first three frets. And one of the most famous American songwriters, it's not just in country, but uh, Woody Guthrie, uh, the father of Arlo Guthrie, uh, he composed hundreds of tunes, and everything he did was in the first three frets. Uh, you can still accompany yourself singing, doing that, and playing lead, too, on a lot of stuff. Uh, so you, if you can do something where you can get some pretty quick results that are satisfying, then you can go on from there. But it's important when starting out to be able to do something that's fun reasonably quickly. And then you can build on that later. But if there's nothing fun happening in the first year, then 98% of people are going to drop out before that year is over. So basically, when you go sit there with an instructor and they teach you theory and all this other stuff, they basically kind of wear you out after six months to where it almost becomes discouraging, just like you're talking about. Well, some of these instructors, particularly if they're teaching classical, 
uh, kids can be playing for two years and have never learned to play a single tune. All they've done is some finger exercises. That's going to bore kids <laughs> quick. It bores adults quick. <laughs> uh, you know, I, that's no fun. If you can learn some a few basic tools, you, know, you can do an enormous amount with no more than three chords. And for that matter, a whole lot of punk and rock doesn't have more than three or four chords in it. There's a lot you can do within those three or four chords, but it doesn't have to be complex musical theory to do some stuff that is very pleasing. You can get into theory later, but something reasonably quick that is still satisfying and communicates something with emotion and pleasant sounds. It's just like, you know, kids don't start off learning to talk by giving them a copy of the Oxford Unabridged Dictionary. (laughs) They don't need that to start to learn to talk. You start simple, and then you build on it. But you need to be able to do something simple that can communicate and is fun. Otherwise, you just don't stick with it. And that's not the way the brain is designed to learn things. You first learn some simple basics, and then you build on that. But you build a foundation of very simple basics, and you can learn. If you can do three chords, hammer-ons, alternating bass, and the scale then you can pick out pretty well any tune you can hum. And you can pick it out yourself. And when I did that guitar lesson I was talking about back in 1965, it was a one-hour lesson with ten kids. And by the end of one hour, six out of ten kids were picking out tunes by ear. And they were excited. Well, that's encouraging. Now, let's talk about vintage guitars, electric guitars. Um, I'm obviously a huge Fender fan, so I like vintage electrics. You have the distinction of selling, and I was reading up on this, the very first Fender Stratocaster. Do you want to tell us a story about that guitar? Well, what we had was a Fender Stratocaster that had an extremely low number. They started with numbers 100. And they were not on the neck fastening plate. Those numbers were on the neck, uh, on the uh, tremolo cover, uh, the white plastic uh, tremolo cover. And they started with number 100. And what we had was 101. Wow. And so that would be the first one to get a serial number. Uh, there were a couple of prototypes, at least before, several prototypes before that, but uh, some of them didn't even look fully like a Stratocaster yet. But uh, so far as the first one sold and shipped was 101. And uh, we sold that to a buyer in Texas, and uh, he still has it and has no intention of selling it. Uh, When he dies, it may go to a museum, but right now uh, he has it and he's enjoying having it. But um, the Stratocaster development 
would have started in 53, but there were none shipped or that even looked fully like a Stratocaster until early 54. They're coming out with the body contours and just finalizing all the details. That took a little while. It didn't happen just in one sweep. Uh, you know, it's not like all of a sudden an idea, a light bulb went off in Leo's head, and he personally designed every detail of the Stratocaster and got it all right the first time, built one prototype, and then everyone after that was just like it. it they don't happen that way. Uh, the for that matter, Leo did not single-handedly design everything himself. He got input from others. So apparently his background was really more in electronics. He wasn't even really a musician, correct? He didn't play guitar. Um, it's uh, interesting enough that uh, John D'Angelico was one of the greatest jazz guitar builders ever, and he also didn't play guitar. Really? So uh, I'm not sure how well Stradivari or Guarneri played violin, but... They were not, nobody ever talks about their playing. They talk about the instruments they build. Uh, I haven't heard anything about C.F. Martin Sr. being a great guitar player. There's no mention made of him playing. I can tell you Chris Martin, who's the current CEO at Martin, doesn't play guitar. Oh, wow, he doesn't? No, not a guitar player. I frankly think it would be better if these people did play guitar, at least just enough to know how they're supposed to feel. But Leo consulted a lot of musicians who did tell him very much what they wanted to feel and hear. So Leo didn't simply design these in total isolation. He'd make a prototype and take it around his clubs and show it to musicians whose judgment he trusted and that's how these things got the specs dialed in. We had the uh, distinction of having uh, Dick Dale on a number of years ago, and uh, he became very, very uh, good friends with uh, Leo Fender. And I guess his story is that he helped kind of develop the, the Stratocaster, as well as some of the amplifiers, particularly the Showman, which was named after him. And uh, so I thought that was kind of fascinating. Did the broadcaster come out before the Stratocaster? Yes, what? the broadcaster came out as the, well, the Esquire was the first six-string regular solid-body electric guitar Fender made. And it had two pickups originally. It was, and it also didn't have an adjustable truss rod in the neck, and the neck's all warped. And that didn't last long at all. Uh, then they came out with the Broadcaster, which looks basically like a telly except for the name on the peg head. And uh, they continued make they redesigned the Esquire at that point to be a similar guitar, but with one pickup. Um, so the original Esquire, which is so rare I've never seen one except in a photo, um, had two pickups. But um, the Broadcaster basically is same guitar with a adjustable rod in the neck and a, a little bit of refinement uh, and was actually offered for sale uh, those early Esquires I'm not sure how many were ever actually sold but it would be incredibly few it's more of an experimental thing um, but there was a design process where 
Leo Fender did not do all of this single-handedly himself. He did work with others. I hadn't heard much about um, Dick Dale being involved, although he may have played a role. I know that uh, um, uh, Carson, Bill Carson, uh, says he played a role working uh, with Fender and uh, as also working late, starting out sort of, sort of just as a musician that Leo consulted with a bit and later he was hired by Fender and he worked uh, in-house at the factory for some time and later as a road salesman. So he's visiting dealers, promoting and selling Fender guitars. In fact, uh, when I first had a Fender dealership, he was my rep, but he'd been working with Leo in 53. and. Uh, he claims he had some role. He doesn't claim he developed and designed the Stratocaster personally, but that he had some input on things like body contours. And he had also had some impact on convincing Leo that the three-saddle bridge on the Telecaster just didn't suit him and a lot of other players. They wanted six adjustable saddles. So the Stratocaster has six adjustable saddles. Now, what role exactly Dick Dale played, I don't know. I never met him. Uh, but Leo was definitely not using only input from one person. He had multiple people that he would get opinions from, and these things could help guide the design process. And I strongly suspect that Freddie Tavares at the factory also played a very significant role in that. What about uh, Gibson guitars? Because basically it was kind of like Fender and Gibson were the two American rivals. And so, you know, uh, Fender, Stratocaster, Gibson SG. Uh, well, early on, Gibson didn't do SGs. That didn't come till 61. 61, right. But uh, Fender uh, was doing, Less. early on, strictly solid body guitars and lap steels. Right. And... Um, Fender didn't get into any hollow body guitars till the 60s, but uh, Fender and Gibson certainly were rivals, but Gibson had been doing electric guitars since 1935. Oh, really? And they were not solid body, they were hollow body. But their earliest uh, electric guitars, uh, they did lap steel starting in 35, and uh, they did uh, some hollow body electric guitars. They didn't do any solid body electrics until the Les Paul model, and that came out in 52. And uh, they certainly were not copying Fender, but they were responding to the fact that Fender solid body guitars were selling well, and they were keenly aware that they didn't have any in their line. But they wanted theirs to look like a Gibson, not like a Fender. They did not attempt to make a copy of what Leo was doing. Uh, Gibson uh, also really didn't have Les Paul design it either. They got Les Paul to endorse it. But uh, Les Paul had input in the trapeze bridge tailpiece combination, which most people didn't like, and they discontinued after just one year. 
um, but they tried to make the guitar look look distinctively Gibson, even though it was a solid body. It had a carved top, almost the contour is very much like an arch top acoustic. And uh, it had white binding around the edge of the top and around the fingerboard. It had big fingerboard inlays. So it was a totally different image that they were trying to project than Fender was. They're both good solid body electrics, and then Gibson was doing hollow body electrics even before they did solid body. But they, both companies made good quality electrics, but they look, feel, and sound different from each other. They're quite distinctively different. In terms of values, when you're when you're as a as a collector, uh, an appraiser, um, give us your thoughts on the classic collector guitar industry as a whole um you know like where where where's it come where's it going do you think and is it is pardon me uh the, the models that are the most sought after today are the same ones that were sought after in 1970 when i opened up my store uh guitar designs may evolve over the years but the true vintage ones haven't evolved. They are what they were when they were made. And um, people are looking for very clean, collect if it's collectors, they typically want things that are extremely clean and fully original, not modified. I mean, it's okay to change strings, but you don't change pickups. You don't swap out necks or decide you want to inlay your name in it or have fancy pearl inlay in the fingerboard. You keep the original one as original as possible. And uh, nobody really considers the strings to be original equipment that can't be changed. But um, the fact is that people are concerned about keeping the guitars as original as possible and still be playable. Well, I'm going to draw an analogy here because I know you were in the zoology and... You said that, that there's a correlation there between your background and training and, and, and the guitars. Well, I'll relate it to the cars. For example, so if I'm looking at a 60s car or a 70s car, and even though you want the car as close to original as possible, if the vehicle has correct, legitimate, period, modifications that would have been acceptable and would have been done at the time, it does affect the value but it doesn't have a, a, a real negative effect on the value because it is a legitimate, honest uh, uh, period modification that somebody would have done back in the day to get a little extra, let's say, tone out of the guitar or, 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 or you know, uh, sound. And so from your perspective as an appraiser, do you, do you buy into that? Does that um, have any really. make sense to you to some extent? I don't know that they buy into that, even with the cars. Look, if if you're talking about a hot-rodded car, right? typically hot-rodded cars at a car show, if it's a collector's show, uh, there's, some that, there's some shows that sort of specialize in hot-rodding, but typically those things don't bring as much money as a totally pristine car. If you have a 1956 or 7 Ford T-Bird or a very, very early Corvette, if it's as close to pristine original as possible, it's going to bring more money than one that's been hot rotted. But where I'm going with this is, if it was a a, a modification was done back in the day, modifications and it won a race. Yeah, 
that you know it, it won the Indianapolis 500 or whatever, and it was modified. Uh, that's cars memorabilia, and that'll be valuable. Okay. But if it was owned by Joe Blow and didn't win races or whatever, they'd rather have that car absolutely original, even if you could hot rod it to have more horsepower or corner better. Okay. Let me ask you this. In the car industry, classic car industry right now, we're going through a generational shift. Okay. So the cars that, let's say, you and I grew up with, as we get older, there's less and less of us out there that are collecting cars. Is the same thing happening in the collector guitar world? Precisely the same. Chet Atkins collected Model A Fords. That's what he and his friends aspired to own before they were even old enough to drive. And then when they got old enough to have money to collect, that's what they collected. A lot of your preferences that are just hardwired into your brain, the psychological term would be imprinting. Mm -hmm. goes back to Conrad Lorenz at the Max Planck Institute for Animal Behavior Studies in Germany in the 1930s. At any rate, puberty through about age 20 is when you imprint on your preferences in music that you'll probably have for the rest of your life. And uh, it doesn't mean that uh, there's nothing that you can learn after that, but the kind of the basic type stuff you like will be there. And uh, I remember even when I was a kid, kids who were 10 years old to 15 years old knew all the model cars from 1,000 feet away at a glance, pretty much. There weren't as many models then as now. And it was almost all American cars. We're not talking so much about the kids being interested in uh, European cars yet at that point. But still, it was before they even had a chance to get a driver's license and before they could own a car their own, they were oh, they were really into it. And when they hit age 40, they went out and they bought a lot of those same type cars, often enough vintage originals, and they had money. Because at puberty through age 20, most of them don't have enough money to buy a car. But they still fixate on what they'd like to have. But with guitars, they, uh, mommy and daddy may have enough money that they can buy them a guitar. And uh, so they can learn to play. It's uh, certainly back uh, well then and now, you can get a quite good quality guitar for way less than the cost of a new car. <laughs> Although, even in 1924, you could go out and spend as much money for a new guitar as you would for a new automobile. Because I have a 1924 Gibson L5 signed by their acoustic engineer, Lloyd Lohr. In 24, it cost 275 for the guitar plus $25.50 for the case. And putting that in perspective, in 1924, a Model T Ford was 265, and you didn't need to go out and buy a case for it. That's that's hard to believe that a guitar cost that much money back then. Well, there were banjos that cost even more. Bacon and Day in Groton, Connecticut, had the uh, their Silver Bell, their simple intro models on the professional grade line. They made models one through five, and the model one was about $125. And that was a lot of money in 1924. And uh, But the style Niplus Ultra number nine was $900. And that's when a Model T Ford was 265 
needless to say, they really didn't sell very many of those style nines. In my whole career, I've had one. Oh, wow. Well, George, we are up against the clock again. I do want to appreciate you for hanging out here. We're definitely going to have to do this again because it's enjoyable talking to you because um, you're so informative, and I like your style. I really do. It's You just have a very intellectual perspective on the whole thing, and I truly appreciate that. So, again, if people want to find out more about Gruen's Guitars, how do they go about doing that? Well, the easiest is the website guitars.com g-u-i-t-a-r-s dot com back when I got that it cost 30 bucks which tells you I'm old enough to have been there first because <laughs> uh, what I did is I trademarked Grun Guitars and then Grun and then Grun spelled G-R-U-H-N hardly anybody remembers that so we figured we'd also trademark this guitars for getting a website not trademark we got a web domain because it was available all three were available Grun Guitars we registered that as a domain name and got Grun as well and guitars so guitars.com we got the same day as the other two and that has proved to be the most valuable name Well, George, on that note, I have to let you go because we are seriously out of time. But anyway, thank you very much. We will be in touch. I want to thank all my listeners. I want to thank my special guest this evening, George Gruen, Gruen Guitars. Don't forget to check out his website. In the meantime, I want to see some of you guys at the car shows. And if you get a chance, pick up a guitar, pick up an instrument, play, practice, and enjoy it. I want everybody to stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.